Well, we are back in First Thessalonians this evening, and we are picking up where Pastor Barrett left us off last Lord's Day in First Thessalonians 5, and we're going to begin in verse 16 and read down to verse 22 this evening. And you'll note that um, Pastor Cosby said that I would be preaching on greet one another with a holy kiss. One of the things I've noted to friends about the pastoral staff at this church is how humble the ministers are and how, um, how willing they are to share preaching responsibilities. And, um, and so as Pastor Barrett and I considered this, um, it was noted that greet one another with a holy kiss was coming up. And I said, he, he said, well, that's, that's yours. And, and we had a phone conversation about it. And I said, actually, I would love for you to take that, and we sort of parsed it up, and after we had broken up all the pericopes, all the little divisions of the passages, he is going to end up with that. And so I have just noted that blessing that is his, um, and not mine to deal with. Um, Always a strange thing to debate who's going to preach what. Uh, But uh, we are looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22, and you'll find this on page 988 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. And just briefly before I read this to us, let me pray for us this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you for every word that you've breathed out. We thank you for the word that we heard this morning. We thank you that you are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. We thank you for the word that has been sent out already this morning in prayers, in scripture reading, in the singing of your praises, and most especially in the preaching of your word. And we pray, our God, that you would do a great work among us for your namesake, for our good, for our joy, but for your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us. We pray that you would know we would know your nearness in this place, even as we pray for those who are worshiping you with their congregations tonight online, that you would draw near to them that, Lord Jesus, you would come and speak a clear word to your people from your written word. We thank you and praise you for the scriptures, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16, and here in this uh, applicatory section where Paul is giving us what, on the surface, may seem to be sort of a machine gun of applications— We now read, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil." Well, it is tempting when you come to the end of one of Paul's letters, and I know I've certainly had this uh, sort of reaction when you come, especially in a, a sermon series in which we're preaching through one of Paul's letters, that when we come to those final sections where it feels as though the apostle is just trying to cram in applications, uh, and as many of them as possible, for us to feel as though we've spent enough time in the book that we've been in, and we feel as though we just want to move on to what may be next and new and maybe richer. And when we do that, we often fail to realize the weightiness of what Paul is doing at the end of his letters. The apostle is bringing, as we've heard throughout this series, and most recently he is bringing all of the facts of Christianity, all of those great truths about Jesus Christ to bear 
in the intricacies of the lives of his people. And he does it in a very methodical and a very uh, sophisticated way. Uh, Last Lord's Day, we noted that Paul is making these applications within the family of God. He calls them brothers several times, and he tells uh, in that section, in that, that applicatory section that we looked at last week, he tells them how they are to conduct themselves with regard to the leaders that God has given them in the church, and he also has a word in there for the leaders and how they are to care for and conduct themselves toward the congregants. There is a, a family code, as it were. There's an expectation of how we live together as the family of God, as the people of God. Here in this section, while it may not seem obvious at first, the apostle is now sort of transitioning to make applications that are specific to individuals in the church with regard to their heart posture before the Lord. So it's as if he is now moving out from the family relationships, and he is saying, now here is what difference the gospel is to make on your life as individuals in the church from the heart before the Lord. Uh, There's a temptation, I think, when we look at this. I I don't know if you remember uh, that really annoying poem by Robert Fulgram, uh, all I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten. I couldn't stand seeing those posters growing up of that, that list of things that were just moral maxims. And if you just and hold your hands, hold hands, is there twice. Don't do that right now, clearly. Um, uh, but, but those moral maxims that just seem straightforward and evident to everybody. And there is a danger that when you come to these, that's the way you read them. And that's not how they're to be read. There is deep and weighty biblical and theological depth to the relationship between these applications and what the apostle has told us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so tonight, I want us to look at this under two sections. I want us to first consider uh, the call to cultivate the graces of a spiritual life from the heart, the, the call to cultivate the graces of a spiritual life, And then I want us to consider, secondly, the call to preserve the source of spiritual life, cultivate the graces and preserve the source. Now, notice that as the apostle walks us in on these specific applications, he gives us three graces all together in a row that he combines when he talks about cultivating these graces. Notice he says in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, the apostle is not saying when he tells uh, the members of this church to rejoice always that Christians are to be sort of glib, chipper people with a, a cheesy smile placarded on their face all the time. But what he is definitely saying is that Christians are also not to be austere and stern and cold and joyless people. There are sort of counterfeits to biblical joy in the Christian church, counterfeits to how we ought to conduct ourselves. One is that sort of cheap, glib, chipper, fake happiness. The other is a stern austereness that doesn't reflect biblical joy. There are There are errors to avoid. What the apostle is telling us is that in Christ, there is real and lasting and deep joy. Uh, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon 
called uh, The Peace That Christ Gives His Disciples. And in that sermon, he says something along these lines. He says he didn't have houses or lands to bequeath to them. Uh, He didn't have anything to give them the way that a father would give an inheritance to his children. But he had peace, and he said, my peace I leave with you. And Edwards is drawing there off of Jesus' final discourse, where in the upper room he says, my peace I give to you, but he also says, my joy I give to you. So that one of the greatest things that Jesus gives us in this life, when we have turned to God from idols to wait for the Son from heaven, is that he gives his people the same joy that was his. Now, that joy carried Jesus through the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So it's not a cheap, um, it's not a cheap glib, chipper, uh, fake happiness that the apostle's talking about. It is a real, deep, abiding joy that enabled Jesus to go through the most horrific and difficult and soul-discouraging moment in his life when all the sins of his people were placed on him and the wrath of God was poured out on him, it was joy that carried him through that. And that means that we can look at a command like rejoice always, and even when our circumstances are incredibly difficult, it is no reason for us not to have joy in the one who has redeemed us and has secured glory for us. Um, the Bible has much to say about joy. We are to rejoice with trembling, the psalmist says. Um, The apostle urges this command in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, it's a verse we cite many times in our home. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Um, It's kind of strange, isn't it, that we have to be commanded to rejoice. We have to be commanded to be thankful. It ought to be somewhat natural that if our eyes are fixed on Christ, it ought to be a natural welling up within us. So Paul's saying cultivate, cultivate that joy. Rejoice always. You have to You have to work at it. It doesn't mean that you aim for joy. Oh, I want to be more joyful. Oh, that I would be more joyful. You fix fix your eyes on Jesus. And in fixing your eyes on Jesus, that joy becomes ours because he says, my joy I give to you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. My peace I give to you. My joy, my love I give to you. Now, Paul gives a second grace that we're to cultivate. He says, pray without ceasing. I don't think the apostle here uh, has in mind just you pulling away into your closet, into what the Puritans called secret prayer, which is so important. Neither do I think that the apostle has in mind here those times of focused gatherings when churches have prayer meetings, which are vital and should be there and are good for definitely cultivating and promoting secret prayer. I think the apostle is saying that In our hearts, we ought to be constantly a people who are uttering our dependence on God wherever we are. The Puritans used to sometimes talk about dagger prayers, throwing up prayers constantly. It's not necessarily saying in a certain posture with your hands folded and and going through motions. 
it's saying that the Christian should be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, who is constantly expressing their dependence on the Lord in all circumstances. Because as we have heard recently, there is nothing apart from God's sovereignty. There's nothing outside of his sovereignty. And I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism said this last week uh, in our worship service, where at the end it says that without his will, we cannot as so much even move. So that we can't even stand up and get on our feet and walk to the refrigerator and get food or get in our cars and drive somewhere apart from God's will so that we ought to be expressing dependence on him for the small things and for the great things, for things as minuscule as our daily bread, which often seems not that significant with all that we have, and things as weighty as the salvation of our children and our parents and our loved ones and our friends, so that whatever situation, Paul says, We need to cultivate this grace that we would be a people that pray without ceasing. Now, notice the third grace he gives us there in verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, if you're anything like me, you you sometimes think through biblical commands and you think about those great and difficult commands. You think about Abraham being called by God to offer up Isaac. And and you ask yourself, if, if that were me, if that had been me, Could I have really obeyed God by faith? And I think the better part of humble Christians say, I don't know that I could have. I hope that God would have given me the grace to. That if we really know ourselves, uh, it would be so foolish for us to look at those commands and say, I would do that too. Um, I mean, Abraham wrestled deeply with what God had said to him and now what God was commanding him to do. But I think we sometimes fail to look at a command like this, the more basic commands, if we could say it, and come to them with the same sense and the same humility. And as I look at this and think, Paul is saying, are you going to be someone who is going to be thankful in all circumstances? Now, I've I've written out 10 reasons why we should be thankful in even trying circumstances, because it's easy to be thankful when everything's going well. So we'll just take that off the table. All of us can thank God when everything's going well, when things are easy. But here Paul says, all circumstances, how can I be thankful when things are not going well? I've had those situations, perhaps you've had those situations, when the bottom seems to fall through, how in the world am I supposed to be thankful to God? And here's what I have. I have 10 very brief reasons why we can be thankful in trying circumstances. First, because we deserve eternal punishment, and whatever we're going through right now is infinitely and eternally less than that. So the worst thing that we suffer in this life is nothing to eternal punishment. And Christ has redeemed us so that we will not endure eternal punishment if we're in him, if you're in him, so that anything else we go through is less than that, we can be thankful in that. Secondly, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because we have already been redeemed by Christ. We're not waiting to be. He has already shed his blood for us. It is finished. He has secured the work of redemption. 
We can be thankful in all circumstances because nothing is going to undo that. Nothing can undo your redemption if Christ stood in your place on the cross and accomplished redemption for you and cried out, it is finished. Third, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because we know and are sure that God does not make mistakes. Whatever circumstance we're in, the infinitely wise God has perfectly crafted it. We may not understand why. Oftentimes we will not understand why. But we can be confident that our loving Father crafts every situation for us perfectly. Fourth, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because of what God is doing in our lives is for his glory and to conform us to the image of his son. So he is going to be glorified and he is going to conform you into the image of Christ through whatever circumstance you're going through. Five, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because we can be confident that God will not waste any lessons he's teaching us in those circumstances. So nothing is wasted. There are rich lessons that we can learn and ways that we can grow in those circumstances. Six, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because we know that we will be able to extend to others the comfort that we have gained. This is 2 Corinthians 1. When we have been comforted by the God of comfort in trying circumstances. Seven, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because we know that God's purpose is to make us whole and complete, lacking nothing. James. James actually says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that God is making us whole. Eight, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because it is better for us to be in a place of weakness where we are dependent on his power. 2 Corinthians 12, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says he did not take the thorn in the flesh, but he taught him how his power was made perfect in Paul's weakness. Nine, we're almost done. We can be thankful in trying circumstances because we are being pruned to bear more fruit. So when, when life is difficult and hard and it hurts, the pruning is painful, the fruit is going to be sweet. So fruit is not born, Jesus says, John 15, unless we're being pruned. And that's not fun, that's difficult. But we can be thankful that God is going to bear fruit through those difficult circumstances. And then 10, we can be thankful in trying circumstances because they serve as a stage on which the deliverance and provision of God's grace in Christ may be displayed in our lives. So I think of a Johnny Erickson Tata. I think of those saints that have suffered far more than we have and who have exude the grace of the Lord Jesus, the joy and the thankfulness. That's often a rebuke to me, and yet God has given his people the grace to be thankful in those difficult situations. Well, I was reading this week about another example, a man I didn't know much about, uh, the hymn writer, Scottish theologian named George Matheson. He wrote 
uh, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, and we sing oftentimes the RUF version of that, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And there's that line in there, I, I trace, uh, somebody help me out, through the rain, the rainbow through the rain. And, and I've always wondered when I sang that, I trace the rainbow through the rain, that's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird poetic way of speaking about God's grace and bringing uh, good things out of hard things. But, but that line came from Matheson, um, who was born nearly blind. At 18 years old, he came to a place where he realized he had never thanked God for his affliction. He said he had thanked God for all of God's kind providences, but he had never thanked him for his afflictions. And Matheson wrote this, my God, I have never thanked you for my thorn. I have thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but not once for my thorn. I've been looking forward to a world where I should get compensation for my cross, but I have never thought of my cross as a present glory. Teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my thorn. Show me that I have climbed to you by the path of pain. And this is hard to say. Show me that my tears have made my rainbow. And so Matheson was looking at that hard burden, circumstance and trial and saying, I can be thankful in the midst of this for what God is doing in it. And through it, we'll notice that Paul now, as he moves from these three graces and the call to cultivate those graces, he now moves to talk about the source and preserving the source of spiritual life. Notice he now says in verse 19, or I'm sorry, verse 18, he says, uh, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So when he comes to talk about the source How can I become a joyful, prayerful, thankful person like this? Because if you go from this place and and there's anything that you take away from this, it's this. How do I become a rejoicing, prayerful, thankful person at all times and in all seasons? Paul says, because God has willed that for you in union with Jesus Christ, so that everything we need for it is in Jesus. And as we keep our eyes fixed on him, it becomes ours more and more. Rick Phillips has this great way of explaining this. He, he says, you know, we, we oftentimes fool ourselves by thinking we're going to attain these things by, by seeking to be more rigorous in our schedules, by realizing all that, that we need to do, by seeking after these things in themselves. And Rick says, that's not how. He says, we become thankful not by means of reminders that we place on our desks, but by coming to know God better and reflecting on everything that he has secured eternally for us in the Son. So that Christ is the source. And then notice what Paul says. Paul says in verse 19, do not quench the Spirit because all of this only becomes ours by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The language of quenching the Spirit draws off that imagery of putting a fire out. There's, there's that intentional image that what, uh, 
Christ is doing is fanning in us and inflaming us unto joy and prayer and thankfulness as the Spirit dwells in us. And the more we quench the Spirit, the more we are neglecting and rejecting these graces. That great picture in Pilgrim's Progress, I know you know it, where Christian is in the house of the interpreter and he sees at the fireplace how um, there's, I think, sand being thrown on the fire, but the fire just keeps getting uh, stronger and stronger, and he doesn't understand how is it that the fire is not being quenched, and the interpreter takes him to the other side of the fireplace, and there's someone throwing uh, water on it, right? No, not water. Oil. Oil on it. Oil of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is inflaming the fire. And Paul is saying, look, the source of all spiritual grace is the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Be sensitive to the Spirit's work in you. And then notice, and, and you may say, well, what, what way does the Spirit work in me? What does that mean? Because sometimes we can talk about the Holy Spirit in a sort of nebulous way, almost a mystical way, as if, well, you know, if we just talk about being filled with the Spirit, if we talk about, you know, um, drinking deeply into the Spirit, if we use the buzzwords, somehow that, that's going to uh, conjure him up almost like a mantra where the more we talk in these sort of um, biblical phraseologies about the Spirit, somehow he then is going to work in us. No, notice what Paul says. He, he gives us a very objective, very objective application when he talks about preserving the source of spiritual life, specifically with regard to the Spirit. Notice verse 20. Do not despise prophecies. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is addressing a congregation, very young congregation, who has just begun to receive God's word. And he has praised them for receiving God's word. And he has praised them for receiving the word that he preached as the very word of God. And Paul is laying that foundation of the New Testament And as such, when we read here about prophecy, we ought to hear God giving the full revelation that we now read in Scripture as it is coming from the apostles to the church. And as we know from 1 Corinthians 14, there was a danger in the early church for them to want what they thought were the greater gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, the greater miraculous gifts. And Paul reminds them that the greatest miraculous gift is prophecy because when God's word is spoken, when it, his word is foretold, men and women and boys and girls are cut to the heart. Their motives are exposed before God. They have an encounter with God by the Spirit because the word is the sword of the Spirit. So that the writer of Hebrews can say, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and all men are laid bare by it. And there was a tendency for them to grow tired of hearing what the Spirit predominantly uses to cultivate spiritual graces in our lives. Um, Sinclair Ferguson puts this so well. He says, when the word of God is spoken, this is the problem here. Whatever I may do outwardly, if inwardly I am saying, I could take it or leave it, 
Or as I used to say uh, over many years, if you're sitting here and listening to this and you're like, when is this going to be done? Unless I'm just having a really bad day and it needs to be done. (laughs) If God's word is being preached and you are indifferent to it and you don't want to hear it and you could take it or leave it, Ferguson says, the danger is that the edification in the word for me is never received by me. So that the joy and the prayerfulness and the thanksgiving that is yours, you are ultimately saying no to by quenching the spirit and rejecting the word, the means that God is using to produce that in us. Um, Notice that last line, I think it goes with this. Test everything. Um, Anytime anyone tells you anything, and they say, this is biblical. You ought to be a Berean. You ought to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Um, We live in a day when spirituality is very high and biblical discernment is very low. Phil Riken once said, and I see this when I go to gyms that are quasi-Christian and they have spiritual maxims placarded on the walls. Uh, In a day when we have spiritual maxims Uh, everywhere in our culture, it shows that we have a famine of the word of God. Because if the word of God was high, and if God's truth was revered, we wouldn't need all the counterfeit maxims. Um, Test everything. And then notice what Paul says. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, how do I know and, and I, wanna, I want us to close with this in particular. How do I know what is good and what is evil? Because there are a thousand voices out there. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about the political pundits. I'm talking about within otherwise self-avowed biblical churches telling you, this is sinful, this is good, this is good, this is not good. And then... Groups start to emerge that, that surround those categories, and, and then it starts to spread, and people say, well, so-and-so does that. It must be good. And, and well, they're not doing that. It must be evil. And the answer is, test all things. Abide in the Word. The writer of Hebrews says that the more we have our senses exercised by Scripture, the more we are well-versed In God's word, the more readily we will be able to discern between good and evil. And we'll be able to say, this is good. This is evil. And if I am going to be a person of joy and prayer and thankfulness, I have to be a person that learns to embrace and hold fast to the good and abstain from every form of evil. And I can only do that through God's word, by the Spirit, in union with Christ. There's so much in these verses for us. I hope if I could just encourage us with one thing tonight, that as we are desirous to become the kind of people that Paul has called us to be, all of this is already done for us in Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary for this. And so we keep our eyes fixed on him. We stay in his word. We abide in his spirit. 
And as we do so, we continue to cultivate those graces in our hearts before the Lord as those that rejoice and pray and are thankful. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, there is so much here and so much that we need. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are not a people who rejoice always, that we have not been a people who pray without ceasing, and that we have oftentimes not been thankful in all circumstances. Our Father, we thank you that you have made these graces ours in Christ, that it is your will that they would be for us and in our lives and that they would be in our hearts. We pray, our Father, that you would give us your spirit, that you would keep us from quenching him, that you would make us a people who love your word and who abide in it, and that you would make us men and women and boys and girls who hold fast to what is good and who abstain from evil. Our Father, we pray that you would do that in us for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.